0: common critical intervention we are doing in the ED is intubating and initiating mechanical ventilation. The optimal
1: oxygenation target in critically ill adults remains uncertain.
2: Unbridled oxygen, peri-arrest in people who are critically ill is not a clever thing.
1: That's not the target population that we're concerned about.
0: Welcome everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks once again for joining us on another CCPEM podcast. As always, we are thankful for your listening and we are always excited to talk about another topic pertinent to the resuscitation of critically ill patients whether they be in the emergency department or whether they be in the ICU. And we are excited to talk about a trial that actually enrolled patients in both the ed and icu so we're going to get to that momentarily but i have to bring in the amazing stars here at ccpem dr rob rodriguez dr john greenwood and dr peter w gentlemen i love checking in with you since our last podcast we've got some updated developments dr greenwood i'm turning to you first because you have returned from an exciting international trip where did you go
3: Oh, yeah. We had a great time. I was out at the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. I was fortunate enough to present some research out there, met a lot of great people. We had a group meeting with the Andromeda Shock 2 sites, and that was an incredible experience. A number of people from sites in Europe, in Latin America, South America, really excited to get started enrolling patients for that trial. And Got to fortunately spend some time with family as well out there. So overall, was an incredible trip. France is absolutely gorgeous. The people were wonderful out there. A great time. That is outstanding.
0: Got that experience, got some education and family time in, and have returned safely to Philadelphia. Dr. Rodriguez, before we hit record, you were chatting about some potential exciting research stuff going on. What is going on with you out West? We have a
1: number of pretty cool projects going. We just finished our NIAID-sponsored randomized trial of uh, vaccine messaging and was a very highly successful trial and and have have good news in terms of acceptance of that paper and presentations on that paper. A lot of good things going out here. John, I'm surprised you didn't talk about being a Philadelphia resident, though. (laughs) i can't talk
3: about it yet because it's not over we had a tough we had no no jinxes For those of you who've been following in the World Series, the Philadelphia Phillies are against the Houston Astros, and I will not bring up the past of the Houston Astros and maybe the shady past of their previous World Series efforts, but this one appears to be generally on the up and up, but they have a great team, and you know we're behind 3-2, so by next podcast, I'm sure I'll either have celebrated or just appreciated a wonderful 2022 baseball season. Yeah, but the Eagles... No, I know. Awesome. We are like, and our soccer team too is in the finals in Philadelphia, the ah. Philadelphia Union. It's like we are the epicenter of sports for this season, which usually isn't the case. Usually the case Philadelphia fans are pretty rough and down by this point, but we're having a lot of fun.
0: That sounds awesome. And Dr. W, always in for what is new and exciting going on in New Orleans.
2: So New Orleans is... A high time for music festivals and food. It's perfect weather for us, then pretty splendid. So it's a great time to be in New Orleans.
0: All right, gentlemen. Well, let's transition now to our clinical topic. And I think, as every single one of us, all of our listeners, well know that critically ill patients continue to stay in the ED. ED boarding, not only for med surge but also ICU-level patients, continues to expand. Capacity constraints, staffing constraints across the nation, patients are staying in the ED longer, and in addition, that may lead to longer lengths of stay up in the ICU. And in many cases, the most common critical intervention we are doing in the ED is intubating and initiating mechanical ventilation. And a key component of managing the ventilator in the ED and the ICU is paying attention to oxygenation. And in the past, over the past few years, we've reviewed a handful of studies here on the podcast that have looked at really oxygen saturation targets in sick vented patients and we've talked about the concept of hyperoxemia or hyperoxia hypoxia and there continues to be some mixed results and that brings us to what we're going to focus on here during the remainder of this discussion it is an article in new england journal of medicine hot off the press it's published online really just a week or two ahead of us recording this podcast by lead author dr semler And it is titled, Oxygen Saturation Targets for Critically Ill Adult Patients or Adults Receiving Mechanical Ventilation. So Dr. Rodriguez, I'm throwing things over to you to kind of set the stage, give us the background as we then transition about this particular study and its applicability to our bedside care.
1: Yeah, thanks, Mike. So approximately 2 to 3 million critically ill patients are intubated and ventilated across the U.S. each year, and their in-hospital mortality in this group remains pretty high at about 35%. And as you know, and all our listeners know, that optimization of mechanical ventilation is a point of emphasis, and we should really be looking at trying to find out how we can optimize mechanical ventilation And this involves adjustment of a number of settings like tidal volume, rate, and so forth, but also principally involves adjusting your FiO2 to maintain arterial oxygen saturation. And so the key background point of this study is that the optimal oxygenation target in critically ill adults remains uncertain. There's been a lot of variability in studies there have been some studies that show that SpO2 targets on the high range of, let's say, 96 to 100%, those provide safety against hypoxemic events, but they can also result in hyperoxemic induced lung injury and brain injury and other problems like that. So there are detrimental effects of having too much oxygen. Then again, SpO2 targets on the low end. 88 to 92%. With those targets, you have the risk of having hypoxemic events and increased morbidity and mortality due to those hypoxemic events. And then there are targets in the middle of those ranges, let's say 92 to 96%, which can avoid the risks at both extremes. But the bottom line is that clinical practice is widely variable with respect to oxygenation in ventilated critically ill patients. We don't really have an answer as to which particular target range we should shoot for in terms of oxygenation. There have been a few RCTs, randomized control trials, that have found different varying results. Some have reported a U-shaped type association between oxygenation and clinical outcomes. So there's just a lot of of uncertainty in terms of what we should target in terms of our oxygenation. So their objective in this study was to determine the effects of lower, intermediate, and higher SpO2 targets on outcomes in critically ill patients who are receiving mechanical ventilation.
0: Outstanding, Rob. Thanks for setting the stage and really where this particular study is looking, what their objective was. So to that end, Peter, I'm throwing things over to you now. What was this particular study?
2: So for the methods for this particular study, and this comes to us from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, it's a pragmatic, unblinded, cluster randomized, cluster crossover trial. So great design conducted in the emergency department and followed up in their ICUs at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. The initial enrollment began in July 1st, 2018. It was paused, as you might imagine, from 4-1-20 to 5 due to COVID. So that was an uptick for them at that point in time. It was then resumed again on June 1st, 2020, and it was concluded on August 31st, 2021. So what kind of patients were included in this study? Well, this was really an adult study, no peds patients. So you had to be aged 18 years or greater. It was located, again, focused in their emergency department for enrollment and their MICU. And they were enrolled at the time of their first receipt of mechanical ventilation. So it was shortly after being intubated and placed on mechanical ventilation, they were enrolled in the study. Now who was excluded? Now those individuals excluded included incarcerated patients and then pregnant patients. So pretty straightforward, not too big exclusion criteria. And then randomization here. So all eligible patients in both the ED and ICU were assigned together as a single cluster to a saturation target. Every two months, the ED and ICU switched together between lower, intermediate, and higher saturation targets in random sequence. The final seven days of each two-month period were then considered an analytic washout period during which the ED and ICU continued to use the assigned sat targets, but data from new patients were not included in the primary analysis. So interventions. The low saturation target, 90%, with a goal range of 88 to 92%. So that's our low qualifiers. The intermediate qualifiers for saturations, that target was 94%. And the goal range that they worked with was 92 to 96%. And then the high saturation target was a target of 98%, with that goal range being between 96 to 100%. So it's pretty easy to figure out the low, intermediate, and high as we go from targets of 90, 94, and then 98 with ranges that buffered on either side. The adjusting of the FiO2 to the target saturation was initiated within 15 minutes of the institution of mechanical ventilation. Imagine that. So they were enrolled and the trial started within 15 minutes of institution of mechanical ventilation and ended at discontinuation of mechanical ventilation or their transfer out of the unit or the end of the two-month study period. So if continuous saturation monitoring was unavailable, oxygen was adjusted to a PaO2 target of 60, 70, and 110 to represent the low, intermediate, and higher targets respectively. So again, if you didn't have SATs available to you for whatever reason, we targeted a PaO2 of 60 for the low group, 70 for the intermediate group, and 110 for the high group. Now we look at primary outcome. So primarily they looked at the numbers of days alive and free of mechanical ventilation through day 28. And then the secondary outcomes will all cause mortality at day 28. So those are our methods for this. So. I'll turn back to you guys for results.
0: Sounds great. Peter, this was pretty innovative in terms of how they set the study up. And I think a lot of these oxygenation studies we've reviewed before have really been in the ICU. And what I really like about this study is enrollment in the ED along with ICU and then taking these three tiered low, intermediate, and high. And it's interesting how they, for a two-month period, everybody got either the low or the intermediate, or the high target. And then over the course of the study period, they had switched, I think I read about 18 times. So it was pretty well distributed in terms of these groups. So Dr. Greenwood, tell us the answer. What's the optimal oxygenation target? What were the results?
3: Uh, I don't know if I have the answer, but I can tell you what the paper found. I agree, Mike, just as an aside, this is a great way to get organizational involvement and get everyone working together by doing it the way that they did it. And you know, definitely worth commending this group. In addition, I mean, the fact that they enrolled over 2,500 patients at a single center, which for a randomized control trial is pretty difficult. And that was out of a total of a little over 3,000 patients that received mechanical ventilation during this study period. So about 446 were excluded during that period. So again, about 2,500 patients were included in the primary analysis, which were pretty well distributed across all three groups, right? So the low, intermediate, and high group all had somewhere around 800 to 870 patients distributed across the three groups, so fairly evenly distributed. Now, it's worth noting that the mean FiO2 values in each group, to kind of give the reader a sense of how sick these patients were to achieve their SpO2 goals. So the mean FiO2 in the low pulse ox group was about 31%. Now, in the intermediate SpO2 group, it was about 37%. And in the high SpO2 group, it was 45%. So not a super high FiO2 concentration. So it's very likely that these were very general ICU patients that weren't requiring significantly elevated FiO2 levels to achieve their pulse ox goal. And in fact, if we look at the other side of oxygenation or PEEP, it looked to be similar in all groups, which was the average was somewhere around five centimeters of water. So when we look at the primary outcomes in the low, intermediate, and high pulse ox group, they found that the results didn't differ really at all. In fact, it was about 20 to 21 days of ventilator-free days and days alive in all three groups. And the results really didn't differ across any of the pre-specified subgroups as well. And that included sepsis and post-cardiac arrest. And when we turn our attention to the secondary outcomes, well, once again, there was really no difference. So 30 to 34% in the secondary outcome as well that Peter mentioned. So in terms of safety outcomes, I think all of us are thinking about maybe some other trials that have looked at oxygenation goals in critically ill patients. The one that I can remember offhand that talked about their potential for harm in the conservative oxygen group, the LOCO2 trial... That found maybe suggestion of increased mesenteric ischemia. When this group looked at safety outcomes, specifically looking at incidence of cardiac arrest, arrhythmias, MI, ischemic stroke, and pneumothorax, really they were all the same across all three groups. So once again, we've found that a conservative versus maybe traditional oxygen strategy in 2020 and 2022, there wasn't much difference in the primary outcome.
0: Outstanding review, John. Thanks so much for taking us through the results. And just to do due diligence, let's hit a few limitations here. And then I want to get the three of you to just basically say how you would interpret this and use this study in bedside or clinical practice. Now, from a limitation standpoint, the authors, I think, do a great job in identifying the primary limitations of their study. You heard Peter say, done at Vanderbilt, University of Vanderbilt Medical Center, they've done a tremendous amount of great critical care work, but it's at a single center. So we think about generalizability to other patient populations. The fact that there were different O2 targets and the titration of FiO2, while well, certainly it was harder, the clinicians really weren't blinded. So single center, not blinded trial. And I think probably something that, John, I'm gonna circle back and you hit the nail on the head really with respect to these patients. Because they were enrolled and initiated within a very short interval after being intubated and placed on ventilation, it didn't really give the investigators the opportunity to truly assess the degree of lung injury or the etiology perhaps of why that patient was being intubated. And when we look at the amount of FiO2 that was required, the amount of PEEP that was applied, eh, probably these patients on the whole did not have a significant severity of lung injury. So taking that into account as we interpret these results. So I think those are some of the key limitations, once again, identified by the pilot investigators, these study investigators. So Peter, I'm going to go to you first. Where would you, you've got a patient in the ED, intubated, you're initiating mechanical ventilation, you're working with your residents to really set the FiO2 to target an SpO2. Does it matter? Is somewhere in the 90 to 100% range. Are you keeping it on the low side? What would you recommend at this point based upon yet another study assessing oxygenation targets?
2: Right, and so I would just say to the listeners out there, this is a great study first. Props to the folks at Vandy for doing this, but this is not a surprise, I think, to any of us, because when they talk about high numbers, when you start talking about goal saturations of 98%, that's not really crazy high hyperoxia numbers. We're not talking about unbridled oxygen delivery. And so if I'm going to choose something, if I can keep it between, you know, in the lane ropes of 94 to 98%, I'm very happy with that. And that's my goal. I think it gives me a buffer. I don't think it's harming people on either side of this from a risk for hypoxia or risk for hyperoxia. And so that's my take on this. I think the other piece I would just say is the reason we're doing all of these studies is because we all really do believe that true hyperoxia, unbridled oxygen, peri-arrest in people who are critically ill is not a clever thing. And we want to avoid that. We also think that Frank hypoxia is not a clever thing either. And we want to avoid that. But these studies are kind of middle of the road studies. They're all reasonable numbers that we really can't argue with. And so that's my take on it. But I'd be curious to hear what you guys have to say. Uh
0: great, great thoughts, Peter. Rob, I'm gonna go from New Orleans out west. Your thoughts. Yeah.
1: So John touched on this, and I'd like to kind of I'm glad I get an opportunity to talk before he does, or he would steal my plunder, but I think while this is a good study, I don't think this is a great study at all. Of course, you're not going to find a difference in outcomes when you have such a broad inclusion criteria for this study. If you're talking about all comers who get an ET2 placed, that's not the target population that we're concerned about. And as John indicated, the mean FIO2s in these patients were all below 50%. This isn't the group of patients in whom you're going to find a difference in oxygen saturation, a study that looks at minor differences in oxygen saturation. It's the group that's critically ill, that's truly critically ill. Those that are on ARDS net type ventilation, those that are post-arrest, those that are maybe post cardiogenic shock type patients. It's that population that we're concerned about, hyperoxia and perhaps hypoxia. Not the standard patient who may get intubated after for like a mild COPD exacerbation or other not so critical illness. So again, I think this is a good study. I'm a little surprised, to be honest that it wound up in New England Journal. It's just not really the inclusion criteria of all comers who got intubated. Not really the population that we're
0: concerned about when we're targeting hyperoxia and problems with that. All right, John. So you get the final word. Rob jumped in there, was very happy to help get his thoughts in there before you could steal his thunder. (laughs) So see if you can take some back. No, I
3: I can't. That was a perfect summary. At the end of the day, listen, I think the treatment effect of oxygen in the way in which we use our FiO2s today is very low. So in order to detect a difference here, this would have to be like a 20,000 patient trial. And that would just be to find a significant difference here. And that might be helpful, but certainly not necessarily feasible in a single center study. The one thing, and I will point this out only because it was relevant to the patient population and the results. And I truly believe that there's something here that is important to be aware of, particularly us who have maybe a different patient population that's a little bit more heterogeneous. So certainly in the African-American patient or dark skin population group here, I'd want to be really careful about and just point out using your pulse ox as a 100% guide to oxygen therapy here, because we do know that it's less accurate in dark skinned individuals. And so while that pulse ox may tell you one thing, if something's not adding up, This might be another time when you step back as a clinician and say, let me check an arterial blood gas to make sure my PO2 is in a range that I'm satisfied with, rather than using the practical or easy approach of using a pulse ox to kind of estimate what the patient's arterial oxygen level is. So at the end of the day, this doesn't change my practice. It's great to see that there's been more attention being paid to FIO2 levels, but I think we've probably reached some degree of understanding of where our target should be. And that's, in my opinion, somewhere between 92 and 98 to 99% on my Pulse Ox.
0: Really, really great thoughts, John. And from all three of you, as always, just a really informative discussion as we talk about these sort of hot off the press articles and what folks are chatting about and really your interpretation and summarization and really drilling down to the bedside is incredibly helpful and important. So my thanks and I wholeheartedly agree with that range, John, that you just mentioned, and really still being cognizant of the effects of just indiscriminately leaving on 100% FiO2. And I tend to personally tend to look probably a little bit more frequently at ABGs than some of my colleagues, because I just like to know that PaO2 number. So agree with all your thoughts. Well, sadly, gentlemen, we've come to the end. We've come to the end. We're at about our time limit here on our CCPEM podcast. My thanks to the three of you for yet another super helpful, super informative, super educational, and quite honestly, fun discussion on this paper. So any of our listeners out there, if you have any follow-up questions for us, we love getting those questions. Each episode usually generates a handful of questions to us. Please send us those questions through the online site or the ccpem.blog site. Be happy to interact with you more so following this and any of our discussions. Well, for this podcast, we'll close it down. We will so look forward to talking to you next time here on CCPEM. Bye for now.